Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I am your host, Andreas Kasai, and you are listening to Season 2 of the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, where we spotlight MFP fellows and alumni and their pioneering work to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. We have so much to explore, so let's get started. Greetings, Marcus, and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. We are thrilled to have you as our guest as we kick off Season 2 of the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast. So let's begin with introductions. Who is Marcus Henderson? And I'm curious to know a little bit more about your backstory and what led you to pursue nursing as a career, a profession that in America, as you know, is dominated by primarily white women. Yes, well, thank you so much for allowing me to chat with you today for the Minority Fellowship Programs podcast. It truly is an honor to be asked to talk a little bit about myself, my career journey, and also talk about just some timely topics in psychiatric mental health and just in our society today. My name is Marcus Henderson. I am a current doctoral student at the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing. Prior to that, I received my bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. And why did I go into nursing? Well, it actually goes back to when I was actually quite young, when I was in middle school. At the time, my mother and I were living in the far northeast of Philadelphia, and I was going to school in another neighborhood that was... And if you know anything about Philadelphia, it's about, it was about a 45-minute to an hour drive, depending on the traffic in the morning to get to school. So I had moved in with my grandmother um, just to help with the school commute during the week. And my grandmother lived with her mother, so my great-grandmother and my great-aunt, my grandmother's sister. And my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and my aunt had Down syndrome. So I really became a caregiver. I became part of the caregiving team of my family. My grandmother's house actually became like a mini hospital. We had two hospital beds in the living room, kangaroo pumps, which is a way for nutritional feeding, because my great aunt had a peg tube, so I was administering medications as a middle school student into a peg tube into her stomach. I mean, you name it, I was doing it. I was doing nursing care as a young person. That's pretty impressive and something that Having taken care of relatives myself, I'm impressed that one of your reactions was not to run away from the profession, but to embrace it. People used to say that all the time, like, you're giving bed baths and you're taking care of your great aunt and your, your great grandmother. And for me, it was had nothing to do with bathing a family member. It was just, that's what they needed. I mean, they did it for me. So what's the difference of me providing the same level of care, respect, and dignity for them when they couldn't do it for themselves. So it's just a no-brainer. One of the subjects that I wanted to touch on with you is the whole issue of race and racism in healthcare in America today. This is the Minority Fellowship Program, and it supports nurses, mental health and psychiatric nurses from underrepresented communities. So racism is an underlying factor that it has created health disparities, adverse health outcomes, health-related injustices in America today. And racism has even been described as a public health emergency, an epidemic in its own right. And I think this is something I've seen reflected in some of your own writing. How would you explain that to listeners 
who might not have considered how racism impacts health systems. You know, after all, we are in 2022 in America, the wealthiest country in the world, where, you know, you would expect, at least at that level, that racism would not raise its ugly head. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for the question. And I think first, as somebody who minored in nursing history when I was an undergrad at Penn, I have a great appreciation for context, especially historical context. And I think that's really where it begins when we talk about how racism shows its ugly head, as you said, in the healthcare system. And that context is that the United States is founded based on colonialism. And that is about dominance, and that is about power. And through that process, whiteness has been standardized as the normal, has been centered as what is considered normal in the United States. So when things like that happen, when an ideology of whiteness is the normal, so anybody who is different is inferior or unworthy, that's going to drive how individuals who have power make decisions. They're going to make decisions that benefit those in the majority, those that want to maintain power, and those that want to maintain dominance over other people. And that trickles down into healthcare because, you know, Ibram Kendi talks a lot about racist ideas and how that contributes to the development of racist policies. And when we think about America in the context of colonialism, that has shaped our media, the way that we talk about race in the United States, which is a social construct, the way that it's portrayed in TV shows and movies. I mean, our education system, there was a period of time where people of color couldn't get an education. And then there was separate but equal. And then there was desegregation of schools. And we're still not at a place where black Americans still have an equal and equitable and just opportunity to get an education. So I think there's a lot of examples, but it all is core to how European settlers came over and took over this land from indigenous people. Again, colonialism. So I think that's how it trickles down into, into healthcare today. Time after time in my professional career as a nurse, I have seen racism. And I'll be the first to admit that I have internalized racist ideas and racist belief and have said racial, racialized statements. And I recognize that that's a context of where I grew up in a white neighborhood, growing up in a white uh, Catholic church, going to a white Catholic school, being the only person of color in my school for a, a long period of time. And I acknowledge that. So I have made poor decisions throughout my career. But I can think of countless times just the way we talk about people of color when we're in treatment team meetings, when we're rounding um, with the interdisciplinary team on the floor, the way we document, the way we interact with, with people. We reinforce these racialized ideas and stereotypes that continue to perpetuate in the way that we care for patients. And it's not only the way that providers care for patients, it's also the way that patients treat providers. Time after time, where white patients asked to see a different provider because they were assigned a provider of color or question their credentials or question their competence. You know, how could you be intelligent? How could you be a nurse? How could you be a physician? You're a person of color. You're inferior to me. I mean, this is the ideology that has been perpetuated in our country. And so many times where people think that nurses or physicians of color are the help 
or janitorial or environmental services. Like these are menial positions. Uh, but these are jobs that people make a living and career out of. But it just, again, just shows the way that we, we just continue to perpetuate these things. I can think of a patient that I, a patient's parent that I was, that I was caring for. And uh, I've shared this story many times, and uh, it was during the COVID-19 pandemic, shortly after uh, George Floyd had been killed in Minneapolis. And of course, there were no visitations at the hospital. So the only way that parents could interact with their children was over the phone and if we had Zoom capabilities, which was really only during the week. And a parent showed up to the hospital lobby wanting to speak to a nurse or a physician and being the charge nurse, what do I do? I go to the lobby to speak with that parent. I didn't have to because we had a no visitation policy, but I know, uh, not personally do I know what it feels like to have a child inpatient, but I, I can understand the anxiety and the stress that a parent would be feeling because their child's in an inpatient psychiatric facility. And I'll never forget going up to the hospital lobby and the mother looked at me she looked at the woman sitting at the front desk uh, of the lobby, who was a black woman. She turned her back to my colleague at the desk and said to me something to the effect of, is it those types of people that work here? Is my son around those types of people? You know, he's not around inner city children. I don't want him to be exposed to their behaviors and the way that they talk. And, you know, that was really the first time I can honestly say that I can vividly recall a moment where I said, oh my gosh, this person is assuming that I'm white, doesn't know that I'm biracial, assuming that I'm white, and has the audacity just to be blatantly racist. And my response to her, I didn't get angry, but I didn't, I didn't at any point play into the racialized ideas and, and statements that she was saying. I just reiterated, you know, your son is safe. He's progressing well in the unit. He's participating in our programming. He's participating in our group therapy sessions. He's interacting with all the children in our unit and our staff appropriately. If you have any concerns, I encourage you to reach out to our nurse manager, or you can speak with your social worker on Monday, but I can assure you, your son is doing well, and we'll have more updates for you when the weekend when the weekend's over. And I remember leaving that situation kind of thinking to myself, did I do the right thing? Should I have said something more? Should I have called her out for, for, for saying those racialized you know, statements and beliefs that her son was in danger because he was around children and staff members of color? I, but I did the right thing. I think in retrospect, for me, I did the right thing. I didn't play into what she wanted me to confirm or acknowledge or believe, because that's not something I believe. So I just, I normalized it in the sense of, your son's safe. I never talked about race. I never talked about there being other children of color on the unit. I just talked about her son and how he was doing well. I just remember that being a pivotal point of, this can no longer happen, and have I allowed it to happen in so many other instances? So you just reflect back on your life and all your experiences of, did I ever do enough? Did I ignore? Uh, so I think I'm just definitely more aware. Whenever I think about what does nursing need to do or what does healthcare need to do, I think of my colleague, Dr. Kenya Beard, and she always challenges us to ask the question, to what extent is racism operating here? 
So using that question kind of as our guiding question for examining practices, policies, procedures, and how racism might be advantaging one group and disadvantaging another. I think particularly in nursing, it's it's enhanced education and open dialogue about race and racism in the classroom and in practice. And when I say enhanced education, I'm not just talking about find an individual from historically marginalized background, put him in the front of a lecture hall and tell them to give a lecture on the history of racism in nursing or healthcare or the United States. No, we can't always rely on people from marginalized groups to be the spokespersons. There's a level of self-education that has to be done. You have to go do this for yourself, but more importantly, you have to want to do this for yourself because you can have all the DEI and anti-racism lectures that you want and require people to attend these trainings, but if they don't want to change, they won't. So it really requires that self-acknowledgement and that self-accountability. And that's exactly what I do. I mean, have I been guilty of asking my colleagues? Yes, but it's not in the sense of, I need you to tell me because I'm not doing the work myself. No, I've done the work. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read. Uh, I, I, I read not only you know contemporary information, but research literature about the topic. So there's a difference when you're trying to be performative and asking people to make it look like you're doing the right thing and saying the right thing versus actually taking the self-work necessary to talk about this. And it's inherently going to be uncomfortable. I mean, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And the cost of doing nothing? Human lives. (laughs) The cost is human lives. I mean, people will die. People have died. For for centuries, people have died at the the cost of racism. And if we continue to do nothing, that that won't change. Absolutely. I think um, one of the really stark statistics that you hear about the United States and uh, something that always takes me aback is the really high rates of maternal mortality, for example, amongst African-American women, rates that are comparable to, well, at, at the bottom of economically advanced countries. So uh, you're absolutely right. And thank you for that. And we will be right back. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. Brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. You can learn more about this unique program that provides support for psychiatric and mental health nurses from underrepresented backgrounds pursuing their master's and doctoral degrees and how to apply at emfp.org or email us at mfp at ana.org. We are speaking with Marcus Henderson, Minority Fellowship Program Doctoral Fellow at Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing. A lot of what we discuss on this podcast can be quite heavy, so let's lighten it up a bit. In tweet-sized sound bites, Marcus, or slightly longer, tell me, who is your nursing hero and why? My nursing hero is David Rank. And David is not a nurse that you will hear about in the history books or that we teach about in the classroom. But I personally think he should be. David is a mentor of mine that I met when I joined the Student Nurses Association of Pennsylvania. And David has been a leader in Pennsylvania nursing since the 1960s. 
um, when he joined the American Nurses Association. He doesn't take credit for the remarkable things he's achieved throughout his career, but that's how I learned the most about being a servant leader, about the purpose. You're doing this for a greater purpose. You're doing it for others, not only yourself. Well, we'll definitely have to look him up. And your proudest moment as a nurse? This is a hard one. Uh, <laughs> I think my proudest moment as a nurse, uh, well, there's two, really, if I could share both. One is being nominated and appointed to the Future of Nursing 2020-2030 Committee at the National Academy of Medicine. I think that's one of my proudest moments, being recognized as an early career nurse and nurse leader to contribute to that consensus study. And I think I'm perhaps the youngest person ever to serve on a consensus study committee at the National Academies. And I think my second proudest moment would be recently becoming an honorary member of the Student Nurses Association of Pennsylvania for my sustaining contributions to the organization. Uh, I firmly believe in giving back and never forgetting your roots. And you know, I only hope to continue giving back as much as that organization has given to me. So getting that honor really, really is special to me. The best reaction that you've had from somebody learning that you are a nurse? I think one of the best reactions is I, uh, as a high school student, was a member of HOSA Future Health Professionals, and I continue volunteering and serving that organization today. So I'm often interacting with high school students and other college students who have interests in health careers. And of course, I'm talking about my career as a nurse. And I always enjoy some of the students who, you know, as soon as they introduce themselves, I'm so-and-so, I'm at the University of so-and-so, I'm on the pre-med track and studying biology. And then I tell them about my career as a nurse and they say, wow, I did not know that nurses could do all that. You know, I thought a nurse worked in a hospital. No, there are nurses that do research, do policy work, leadership roles, or educators. So I think that's always the best experience, especially when it's young people of, oh, a nurse works and does more than just working in a hospital. And I get that often. <laughs> I wonder how we can change that perception in the general public. And then the worst reaction from anybody learning that you are a nurse. There's always that experience where people say, well, you're just a nurse. And what does that mean? It's, well, you're just a nurse. So what do you know? You know, you don't have the level of education as, say, a physician. So I want to speak to someone who that person believes um, is more of an expert or has a better education in whatever, you know, the topic or thing that you're talking about. So I think the worst reaction is always the word just. And it always bothers me, even when nurses say, well, I'm just a nurse. No, you're not just a nurse. You are a nurse. That is your professional identity. That is the career you've chosen. And stand firm in your decision because you shouldn't regret or say that you're just a nurse. So I think that's always been the most sour reaction. And now turning to the way that nurses are portrayed in the media. What is your greatest pet peeve? with the way that nurses are portrayed, especially male nurses? I think my biggest pet peeve is that it's never accurate, or it's not always accurate, I should say, that we're depicted as assistants to other professions um, and the task orientation that many folks think that nursing is about, medication administration, IVs, all those types of things, which it is. But I think there's just not always that well-rounded picture. 
And I think it's always emphasized about our core values of like caring and trustworthiness, um, which are important, don't get me wrong. But I think the media often forgets to showcase that we're a science-driven profession, we're evidence-based, we're knowledgeable, we're leaders. I think that's my biggest pet peeve, that um, we continue not to value nurses uh, as experts, specifically health experts. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. There is a critical need for students of all underrepresented ethnic backgrounds to pursue graduate degrees in psychiatric mental health nursing. The Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association is a federally funded program designed specifically to provide fellowships and mentoring support to students from all underrepresented ethnic backgrounds pursuing master's and doctoral degrees in these fields. Visit emfp.org to learn more and apply. I'm struck by your passion for community health. Your commitment at university earned you the 2017 President's Engagement Prize from the University of Pennsylvania, which came with $100,000, and you put that towards providing services for the homeless in Philadelphia. Your research has since shifted, and you are now focusing on children. Now, why is that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question, something I get often about. You were working with adult men experiencing homelessness, and now you're working with children, and why is that the case? And I think for me, it was working in the homeless shelter, I witnessed a high prevalence of unaddressed physical, mental health, and social needs among this population. And, you know, I began reflecting and thinking more about how can I prevent this in the future? And of course, I went down the train of thought about social determinants of health and how can I advocate for structural change to address some of these issues that were impacting this population. But then I thought a little bit more deeply of, you know, after learning about the stories and the lived experiences of the people we were caring for, a lot of it started in their childhood. It started out with adverse traumatic experiences that they may have had, what their family dynamics and social support networks looked like when they were a child. So maybe think of, I, I want to be in a place where I can intervene soon enough or early enough where I could hopefully change the trajectory of somebody's life. That was hopeful for me. How would you describe the present mental health care system for children and their families? It's extremely broken and fragmented as the entire healthcare system in this country. And it only works for those that can afford to pay for it out of their pocket. Our healthcare system is built on someone comes in inpatient for services, we treat the acute need, and we discharge them. So it's let's patch you up and get you out. And we fail to recognize the social, environmental, and other factors that are influencing this person's life. We're very quick to gripe about high readmission rates and high costs and people that don't follow up with treatment plans, but we don't spend the time to actually understand the social factors and other things that contribute to this individual ending up in our healthcare system. So that's how we're so broken and fragmented. And working with children, you know, they're predominantly there because they're at risk for hurting themselves or hurting someone else. So what do we do? We stabilize them to make sure they're not going to hurt themselves or hurt anyone else, and we let them go. 
but we're discharging them to a community that has a lack of mental health care providers, a lack of primary care providers who are fully equipped to address mental health concerns that a child or any individual might be having. So it's not just broken in the inpatient context, it's broken across the continuum um, from a variety of different areas from workforce, education to payment and reimbursement. Looking at the totality of, of, of all of these different issues, what can be done today and by whom to fix the system so it can better respond to the mental health needs of children? And specifically, what would it cost and what, and what are the returns on, on that investment? Yeah, definitely. I think there are a lot of key stakeholders to fix this. Obviously, importantly, children, parents, and families are key stakeholders. How can we fix a system without centering the experiences of children and families to truly understand what needs to change in the system? I think that's the first problem. We're quick to find solutions, but those solutions are developed by individuals who don't have the contextual awareness to understand the downstream impacts of the policies or programs that they're actually implementing because we don't center those voices enough. So I think that's key. Anything that we do involves children, parents, and families. And when I say parents, it's also caregivers, you know, other people who would we would identify as parents. And then of course, I mean it's your typical suspects. It's local, state, and federal government elected officials, appointed officials, it's the business sector, it's the education sector. I mean, every every major sector in society has a stake in this to ensure that we, we fix not only the mental health care system, that we just fix a broken society. I worked in inpatient psych, and let me tell you, I'll be the first to say that I don't even want to see a child inpatient. And in my experience, a lot of schools are your primary referral base. And I think that's a great example about when we're thinking about how do we fix it, what does it cost, and what is the return on investment. If a lot of children are being referred from schools, that means that we're not equipping our schools well enough to handle children who have challenging social and emotional and mental health needs. One in four schools in the United States does not have a school nurse. That's injustice right there. School nurses, we know, are incredibly important to promoting child health and well-being in a school context. And they're not just working with children. They're working with families because they recognize the importance of addressing issues in the family context to promote that child's life. There was a study in Massachusetts that looked at what happens when we invest in school nursing. And that study found that If we invest in essential school health services, there's a return on investment of $2.20 back to society, and that savings is realized in avoided medical costs for children and in savings in the loss of productivity that teachers and parents experience in the absence of school health services. So we know that it works, and we know that school nurses are well-equipped to address these issues, but that's just one example of where we uh, undervalue and underinvest in ch- in children. And we will be right back. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers: Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. 
You can learn more about this unique program that provides support for psychiatric and mental health nurses from underrepresented backgrounds pursuing their master's and doctoral degrees and how to apply at emfp.org or email us at mfp at ana.org. Turning now to the future of nursing, you've recently served as a member of the Committee on the Future of Nursing 2020 to 2030 at the National Academy of Medicine. You are an elected board member of the American Nurses Association, and in 2021, you were appointed to serve as a member of the National Commission to Address Racism in Nursing, and you are a trustee of the American Nurses Association Political Action Committee very impressive accomplishments so early in your career. So I'd like to say congratulations. Thank you. And then ask you if you have any tips to share with other nurses who are interested in getting on boards and other committees and why you think this is so important, especially for nurses from underrepresented backgrounds. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a nursing lens, nursing perspective is so important in leadership roles. Again, like we talked about, because of that holistic perspective and that person-centeredness that we prioritize, and we think about those downstream consequences, and especially for nurses from historically marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds. People always ask the question when you're around a decision-making table, you know, is everybody represented? Is everybody here? Do we have all the right people around the table? And it's very quick to, it's very easy to say yes. But when you ask the question of, who's missing from the table, what voices aren't represented, it requires you to think a little bit differently to ensure that there's diverse representation, that there's equitable representation, that the voices of those who've been silenced or marginalized are present, are heard. I think we often hear the adage of if you're if you're not on the if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. But I would even argue that sometimes you can be at the table and you're not heard. So it's about equity and inclusion and how we establish a sense of community and a sense of safety so that all voices are equally valued. And the tips that I would have for nurses that are interested, it's, it's, it's find your voice. It's, it's recognize your worth. You know, regardless of your years of experience, the letters behind your name, you have lived experience. That is your expertise. Um, no matter of what stage in your career that you are, sure, that's the nursing perspective that you bring. But, you know, I'm Marcus Henderson. I'm a first-generation college student. I grew up in a single-parent household. Uh, I'm biracial. These are all of my lived experience that I bring with me to the table, and that needs to be valued and counted. But, you know, we're so hyper-focused on people's credentials and the education um, that we often dismiss some of this valuable lived experience that truly contextualizes how we make decisions. And I think the only other thing I would add is, is never, you know, discredit yourself. I speak to nurses all the time who are saying, you know, this is my goal. You know, I'm finishing my master's degree and then I'm going to go do this internship for two years because I need more expertise in this area before I go get a job or what have you. And I say, well, how many years have you been a nurse? Oh, I've been a nurse for five, six, seven years. Well, that's your experience. What more experience do you need? So it's people recognizing that they have that experience, but we often are quick to discredit ourselves saying that we need more. And that's for people who are serving on boards and in leadership roles that are looking to bring in new perspective and voices. 
they have to stop deferring to expertise. You know, it's very easy for folks to complain that there's not enough young people or new voices around the table, but when we're there, you don't value us because we're, quote-unquote, inexperienced. But you have to take the step to mentor people, to sponsor people, to take on those leadership roles. Because when everybody retires, if you don't mentor or sponsor people to be the next generation of leaders, then we're going to have a void. So it's not just the onus on nurses to step up and recognize themselves and go out on the limb, but it's also for current leaders to, to step out and reach out. Because in my experience, a lot of folks aren't as willing to do that because it's easier to get somebody who has experience or expertise because they're going to do it right the first time and I don't have to worry about supporting someone who needs to learn. I want to take us to on, on a slightly different direction now and just reflecting on where we are now, today, uh, in this present historical moment. We're at this inflection point, it seems. COVID, political polarization, climate change, war, global militarization in general, and now with what's happening in uh, Eastern Europe, the threat of nuclear apocalypse all of a sudden you know, coming back. It seems like this would be a moment where psychiatric and mental health practitioners in general would be very much in demand. What would you say are the unique potential contributions that psychiatric and mental health nurses can make as we chart through these turbulent dystopian times? That's a, that's a great question. And I think there are many different potential contributions that psych mental health nurses can make. And I think Generally speaking, you know, we've talked about how nursing in this holistic view, but with psych mental health nurses, it's inclusive of mental health. It's a trauma-informed approach. It's about lived experience. It's about what has happened to people and taking the time to build therapeutic and interpersonal relationships. I talk about, you know, these things we often think about in the clinical context, but I translate these skills wherever I am, at a board table and committee meeting, you know, wherever I'm at. I prioritize getting to know people, human connectedness, and the importance of that. And people often forget that the earliest leaders in nursing were psychiatric nurses. The first specialty, the first graduate specialty in nursing was psychiatric nursing. So we often forget that our earliest leaders who who developed the profession into what it is today had this skill set. And and what is that? It's a, it's it's about people. And I think that's the most in unique contribution. I think people will argue that, that, well, that's every nurse. Every nurse and person is centered. But a psychiatric nurse thinks about it differently because we know that there are, there are so many experiences and factors that influence people's lives. And I take that awareness into any interaction that I have. And I think that's, that's really it. It's simple. <laughs> given all the challenges that we, we've been discussing and the fact that we don't have enough of you guys, uh, how do we improve pathways to the profession, especially for nurses coming from underrepresented communities and for men? Yeah, no, definitely. And this is something we certainly talked a lot about in the Future of Nursing Report is we have a diversifying population across this country. And we know that when the workforce reflects the diversity of the community that those nurses or providers are serving, that outcomes are better. 
and nursing, it, it does not hit the mark on that. Uh, I think it's approximately 20% of nurses come from ethnically diverse backgrounds. And it's projected, you know, I, what's it, by 2030 or 2050 now that majority of the population will be uh, from ethnically diverse backgrounds. So we have to do better. I think it's easy to spout off the traditional pathways of ensuring the ability to attain advanced education. So LPN to RN, RN to BSN, RN to MSN, and all those types of pathway programs that we have. And it's easy to say that, but we have to think about, you know, students and individuals coming from historically marginalized backgrounds. It's not just simple enough about providing this program, giving them tuition, and giving them financial aid support to get them into the program. There are other social needs that we have to consider. It's very easy for us to consider the social needs of our patients, but we as students have social needs too. I was talking with a colleague once. A student had to drop out of their nursing program because they couldn't pay their taxi fare or their lift fare to get from where they lived to the clinical site to continue their program that was 15 or so miles away. They had to drop out because they couldn't afford transportation. I mean, what world do we live in where we can't support people to get transportation, to get to a clinical site, to advance their education. And that's just one example, but you think about childcare, the cost of books. Um, you know, for me personally, you know, I take care of my younger brother and sister. I financially take care of them. No one's ever asked me that in my program. You know, they're like, oh, you're a doctoral student. We're going to give you a full-time stipend and we're going to, you know, give you the stipend so you can take your program full-time. But that stipend is is peanuts compared to what I was making as a nurse one, and it doesn't take in consideration of the fact that I have siblings that I financially take care of and support, one that's in high school and one that's in college. So it's it's understanding that there it goes beyond traditional academic and financial needs, but social support needs. And we're seeing programs do better, developing funds and and being more open and intentional about that. But again, we're in a profession where most of the folks didn't have those experiences. So they don't ask those questions because that wasn't what, that wasn't their lived experience. So that's why we need to diversify the faculty. And it's not just simply hiring individuals from diverse backgrounds to be on faculty to, to, you know, promote this pathway. So people see people like them, but it's about creating an equitable and inclusive environment where faculty and students feel valued, supported, heard, and that there, there's a lot of work to doing that. And the, the other thing that I didn't mention in terms of pipeline is we need to do a much better job of reaching out to middle school and high school students. Um, and I think this will also help with the public perception of nurses. You know, young people choose a career because of someone they met in their life early on and they found out, oh, this person's a chef or this person's a doctor, so that's what I want to be. So being more intentional in how we expose young people to the profession of nursing. I want to ask you about your experience with the Minority Fellowship Program so far, how it's been going, and what more you'd like to see from the program as it continues to work to increase the number of rigorously trained um, and educated nurses from underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. Yeah, certainly. And I think as a new fellow, I'm still learning about all the opportunities that the program provides. But I think for me at this point, being less than a year into, into the fellowship is 
the mentor program that the fellowship has. My mentor has been phenomenal. Dr. Phyllis Rayner has been such a great sounding board for me to not only talk about my research and my interest in children, given her background working with, with youth, specifically in substance use, but more importantly, just navigating the system as you know, an underrepresented minority in nursing and really helping me just to reflect on some of my experiences uh, in the program now. I think the mentorship program that the fellowship has is perhaps the most vital piece in my opinion, uh, I value mentorship tremendously. Uh, mentorship is really important to me, and I think that's the best part. Well, we thank you very much, Marcus, and I also look forward to exploring all these things as you progress through the fellowship program. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting underrepresented communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. <laughs>